We've arrived at the final passage in Acts chapter 4. Uh, it's both informative it's, and inspiring. As I think you'll see, it's uh, a somewhat transitional passage that leads us into a new season in the life of the fledgling church in the first century. Uh, a season of expansion, to be sure, of the of the church itself and of the uh, the proclamation of the gospel, but also a season of testing and trial. Our title this morning is The Grace of Generosity, and our text is Acts 4, 32 to 37. We have a tradition here at LifePoint of standing to honor the reading of God's Word, and so if you're able to do that, I invite you to stand with me, and we will read this aloud together. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is God's word. You may be seated. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to find Acts 4, 32 to 37, and also put your finger over in Acts 2, We're going to be bouncing back and forth between those chapters a little bit this morning. Our first realization in verse 32 of chapter 4 is that the first Christian church of Jerusalem enjoyed what I'm just going to call this morning uncommon commonality. Uncommon commonality. It's an awkward combination of words, perhaps. But it refers, uh, first of all, to the extraordinary statement in the latter half of verse 32 that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Do you see it there? They had had everything, everything in common. We read the same expression in chapter 2, verse 44 where Luke said, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. That phrase appears in both verses. The language is identical. Those four words, all things in common, translate just two words in the Greek language, penta koina. Penta koina. You might recognize uh, the word pan there in Panta, meaning all, or actually in this case, meaning each and every. And you probably recognize the word koina as the root for the word koinonia, which is usually translated in the New Testament as fellowship or partnership. And what that ought to tell us is that there's something deeper going on here. If we take one step back, the first part of verse 32 brings that something deeper into focus, where we read now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. The full number. 
all of them were of one heart and soul. With that statement, two more words come into view. Now, they're not in the text, but I'm suggesting them. The first word is unity. The second is unanimity. So let's begin with the word unity. And I'm going to ask you to take another step backwards and notice the action that precedes the statement in verse 32. You'll recall from last week's study that following an impromptu prayer meeting, when Peter and John were released from the custody of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, and they went back to their friends in the church. And in verse 31 of chapter 4, we read, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all, they were all, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The reason I repeat the word all is that that word and other words that relate to it keep getting repeated here in these chapters. There's a sense of a comprehensive involvement of the entire church in what the Holy Spirit was doing. The New Testament writers are clear that the the oneness or the unity of believers is created by God, is entered into when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. So it's created, in a sense, by our shared faith in Christ. And then it's sustained by the continual filling and renewing of the Holy Spirit. God has made us one in Jesus Christ. The New Testament writers say that in a variety of ways. That's our status. God creates by his spirit unity in the church. And that's the blessed experience of those who are being continually filled with the spirit and walking in step with him. It's almost like we're forced together in a very positive way. And what has been called Jesus' high priestly prayer that's recorded in John 17, Jesus prayed three times in that one prayer that we His followers, his disciples, Christians, would be one. That we would be, in fact, perfectly one in the same way that he and the Father are one. Notice at verse 11, Holy Father, not talking about the Pope there, he's talking about God. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. In verses 20 to 21, I do not ask for these only, meaning his disciples at that time, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That is, he's praying for you and me, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Notice the intimacy of those words. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then in verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So understand this morning that this is not a unity that we're simply to observe, uh, to study, to examine, to be aware of, to acknowledge. Instead, it's a oneness that we are to experience. 
And it's a oneness so real, so practical, so tangible, that it ought to be observable to the watching world in the ways that they see us conducting our relationships. Notice verse 21, so that the world may believe, Father, that you have sent me. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. And verse 23, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. The fact of our oneness in Christ will never change. We're stuck with each other for all eternity. I'm sorry. Not sorry. But the ongoing experience of unity in the church is always in peril. Why? Because we're sinful. Because we're selfish. We're insensitive. We're moody. We offend each other. We're destructive of the very unity the Spirit is trying to create and wants us to experience. But enough about me. Let's talk about you. Not only that, but we have an enemy who wants to divide us. Because why? Because if he can divide the church, if he can create disunity in the church, if he can create disgruntlement in the church and, and bad attitudes and fractured relationships, then he can deface the witness of the church. And, and, and in that, he can stop the expansion of the gospel. Now, I suppose that's why Paul wrote to the believers in the city of Ephesus and said, be eager, be eager to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He said in another place, always strive in as much as it's up to you to live at peace with everyone, beginning, I think, with the church, with other believers. Be eager. Some of your translations will say, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. It's something that we are responsible to do. And it means that at times we need to humble ourselves and acknowledge that we've been all of those things that I just described and more. That we have been destructive of relationships. And we need to seek reconciliation. The second word that we need to observe in verse 32 is unanimity. Unanimity. It's not in your text, but the thought is there. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. That's an expression of unanimity. We shouldn't allow ourselves to read the phrase of one heart and soul and other phrases like it in the Bible, in the New Testament, in the same emotional way that we read the statement, and they all lived happily ever after. Because Luke isn't expressing some pie-in-the-sky, highly idealistic, highly theoretical, wishfully romantic scenario. He's saying something very simple, very straightforward, very hard-headed. To be one in heart and soul is to experience unanimity. Unanimity isn't compliance. Unanimity isn't conformity. 
The expression tells us that they were on the same page regarding everything that mattered most. It speaks of being one in faith, being one in passion, one in purpose, one in priorities, one in in witness, one in the practice of a common lifestyle. And it's not until we've understood this that we're able to comprehend, I think, the extraordinary nature of what Luke is actually telling us in verse 32. Let's look at it yet again. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Having told us in verse 31 that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, Luke tells us in verse 32 that the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And what follows in the latter part of verse 32 is an immediate statement about the impact of the Spirit's presence and the Spirit's filling on their attitudes toward their money and their possessions. What preceded Luke's earlier description in Acts 2, 44 to 45, what was it? It was the day of Pentecost, the day that that Jesus just poured the promised Holy Spirit out on the church. The day that we say the church was baptized in the Holy Spirit, and they were all, it says, filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice again what he said there, and all who believed then were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So understand this, that the filling of the Spirit had an immediate impact on the Christians' attitudes toward their money and their stuff. Crazy, isn't it? Because we we kind of think, well, that's something we can deal with later. But what what Luke is telling us is that when the Holy Spirit acts, there's an immediate change in the way we understand our relationship with our money and our material possessions. There in Acts 2 and here at the very center of verse 32 is a radical recognition. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Let's take a moment to, to observe what's not being said here. This is not a renunciation of personal possessions. This is not a vow of poverty. This is not a a primitive kind of Christian communism where property is seized by the leadership in order to be redistributed. Notice that they had things. That's the very word. They had things, and those things belonged to them in a legal sense. They owned their homes. They lived in them, and those homes were filled with possessions as any household would be. What what then was their radical recognition? It was that nothing that belonged to them actually did. Nothing that belonged to them was actually their own. From a legal perspective, their money and their stuff still belonged to them. It was under their control. It was under their personal discretion, but it didn't belong to them. So whose then was it? And one of the things that we understand from the reading of the Holy Scripture is that the foundational biblical recognition and affirmation regarding our possessions is that everything we have is from the Lord. It all belongs to Him. It's all His. First Chronicles 29 records the occasion of free will offerings being brought to Jerusalem for the construction of the very first temple. And you remember that was David's 
passion, that was his heartbeat, to build a permanent dwelling place for God in the city of Jerusalem. And, and David had saved lavishly um, over the years. And when the time came, he gave it all up, all that money that he had saved for this purpose, all the materials he had collected. He gave it all. And then after David had given his portion, then all of the other leaders, leaders at every level, generously brought their contributions. And it says there that David rejoiced greatly. I I imagine that's an understatement. And then he blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. He praised God and worshipped him. And I want to share with you a portion of his prayer that followed. And as I read, notice the repetition of the words, you, your, and yours. I've, I've highlighted them for you. Uh, I'm sure if I missed one, someone will tell me afterwards. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. See, we don't have anything and therefore we can't give anything to God that he didn't first give us. So here's the root of the of this radical recognition that I'm talking about on the part of the first Christian church of Jerusalem. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They held things loosely. The principle they understood and that you and I today need to embrace is this, that what you think you own is really just on loan. Will you say that out loud with me? What you think you own is really on loan. Again, what you think you own is really on loan. What appears to be mine What he has entrusted to me right now for the time being really belongs to him. I received it from him, and therefore I am merely a manager of his stuff, a steward of every bit of it. Whether I'm a good steward or a bad steward remains to be seen, probably can be seen. The principle then that we need to see is that, that what you think you own, is really on loan. See, some have called what those early believers were practicing uh, communism, kind of a Christian communism. But check this out. Communism says what's yours is ours. We'll take it. What's yours is ours. We'll take it. Christian 
Christianity or Christian koinonia, if you will, Christian fellowship or partner says first, what what's mine is God's. I received it. And then by the impetus of the Spirit, it says, what's mine is yours, I'll share it. In verse 33, then, we read that they experienced great power and great grace. Great power, great grace. Verse 33, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Apparently, the the apostles ignored the threats of the Sanhedrin. But what was the great power that was infused into the apostles' testimony? Understand, first of all, it wasn't their personal power. It wasn't their skill as orators or public speakers. Clearly, it was the power of the Holy Spirit. And that power was given greater visibility. It was given greater credibility by the observable dynamic of radical and sacrificial generosity within the believing community. See, I find it very interesting that that this statement regarding power being expressed through the apostles in their witness to the resurrection of Jesus is sandwiched between two pretty graphic statements regarding the church's practice of generosity. And I really see verse 33 as a validating statement parallel to what Jesus said to his disciples as it's recorded in John 13, 34, and 35, where he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, that you also are to love one another by this, by this. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Not if you have right theology or sound doctrine or can parse Greek and Hebrew verbs, but that you love one another, that you love one another. The late Francis Schaeffer referred to Jesus' commandment that we're to love one another as the final apologetic. That is, when all is said and done, the the final validating proof of our claim to be disciples of Jesus. He said that it seems that Jesus has given to the world the right to judge the reality and the credibility of our claim to be disciples of Jesus on this one criterion, whether there is an observable, tangible love between members of the Christian community. For us as followers of Jesus, Christian community can never be an end in itself. It's a wonderful thing. But it can't be an end in itself. A Christian community is a community on mission. And an organization that's that's not on mission may call itself a church, may claim that tag, that handle, that label. But when it ceases to engage in the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it ceases to be the church. And in fact, I'll go one step further and say when the church is not on mission, community disintegrates. Because the organizing principle behind the mission of the church is this, make disciples of all the nations. If we're not about that, if that somehow becomes a secondary thing, then Christian community gets sick and dies. 
I once read that vital, observable Christian community centered on the gospel, fueled by the Holy Spirit, may be, may be one of the most important prophetic messages we can give to the world. I believe that's true. In verses 34 to 35, then, we read that the sacrificial generosity of believers resulted in the negation of need. The negation of need, verses 34 to 35. Notice that first statement, there was not a needy person among them. And let me ask you, how, how historically significant is that statement? How historically unique is that statement? In the church, there were no needy people. How statistically probable is that reality? And yet, there it is. And why? Luke tells us, as he goes on, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. This is an ongoing reality. In your, your NIV, if you have an NIV Bible, it says from time to time. And, and that just captures the, the tense of the verb. As many as were owners of lands or houses, literally it says we're selling them. Continuous basis. So, so Luke is, again is saying, I think with greater specificity, what he said in Acts 2, 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So as we read this passage, it seems to me that the baseline is established in chapter 4, verse 32 that the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. They were they were sharing everything they had. This was the ongoing, everyday reality. Continuous sharing, generosity, mutual service, mutual support. But in verses 34 and 35... This magnanimous action of selling lands and houses, laying the proceeds at the feet of the apostles, seems not to have been continuous. Seems not to have been customary, but instead occasional, intermittent in response to special needs that arose. Not, not ordinary, but still extraordinary. Some have suggested that what's described in verse 32, that is the baseline, is detached from and contradictory to what is described in verses 34 and 35. I don't see it that way at all. I see them as being complementary to each other. In Deuteronomy 15, verse 4, in giving the law, a command was issued that all of Israel knew and understood, and it said, but there will be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. We could take it, first of all, as a prophetic statement. 
but it's given as a command. It's given as an imperative. There will be no poor among you. The Lord's going to bless you in the land. And therefore, you'll have resource. But there were poor people in Israel, weren't there? I mean, we just read about one a couple of weeks ago, the lame man that was healed at the beautiful gate, as an example, begging, asking for alms. Jesus Jesus even told his disciples, the poor you will always have with you, meaning that he understood that that that's a command that's going to be pretty hard to obey. But the first century church took it very seriously so that Luke could honestly say there were no needing persons among them. How, how remarkable. See, in the heartless world of Greek and Roman culture, the generosity and the service of that first generation of Christians presented such a stunning contrast that it caused everyone who was paying attention to sit up and take notice. And throughout the book of the Acts, or though the book of the Acts of Apostles is primarily a book of sermons and prayers, it's fair for us to speculate that Christian generosity and service did as much to win people with the gospel than all the preaching that was done. Uh, One event in the early history of the church demonstrates that with great power. In the middle of the 3rd century A.D., a plague erupted that uh, historians say probably started in Ethiopia. It spread across Africa and across the Mediterranean. It finally reached Rome. It spread to Greece and to Syria and the surrounding countries. It lasted nearly 20 years, and at its peak, it reportedly killed as many as 5,000 people per day. Accompanying the plague was constant warfare in those days, floods, droughts, famines that ravaged the region. And a man named Cyprian became the bishop of the church in the city of Carthage. Carthage is now called Tunis. It's on the north coast of Africa, the nation of Tunisia. And Cyprian remarked at the time that it appeared as if the world was at an end. The plague claimed the lives of rich and poor, great and small. And when the plague reached the city of Carthage, the wealthy and those who were still well fled the urban areas for the countryside. Cyprian called the Christian believers together in the center of the city. And he urged them to stay in the city and and play an active role in caring for the ill and burying the dead. More specifically, he called them to four things. First of all, he called them to identify with and to empathize with their unbelieving neighbors in their common humanity. To embrace a solidarity with them in a fellowship of suffering. And then secondly, he called the Christians to embrace the will of God and and not allow themselves to be taken captive by what he referred to as the terror of death. And why? There was no reason, he said, for them to be overwhelmed by the terror of death as their neighbors were, because in Christ they had been given the gift of immortality, of eternal life. Third, he reminded them of what is of ultimate Significance. He reminded them that they were strangers on the earth, foreigners, 
and that they were only sojourning here for a short time. And so they should, quote, embrace the day which assigns each of us to his dwelling, which on our being rescued from here and released from the snares of the world restores us to paradise and the kingdom. And then fourth and finally, Cyprian pointed forward to the destiny, the eternal destiny of Christians. And he said, what pleasure there in the heavenly kingdom without fear of death, he said, with an eternity of life, the highest possible and everlasting happiness. And so they stayed. They stayed. Many of them died. The pandemic they took, uh, they faced took the lives of thousands of people for every day for 20 years. But Cyprian's vision extended beyond all of that, beyond the present world to the future kingdom, to paradise. And so he didn't urge them to practice social distancing. He urged them instead like firemen running into a burning building to give themselves to caring for their neighbors and so to demonstrate the love and the compassion of Christ, to trust their souls to the one who gave his own life that he, that we might live. As a result of his dynamic transformational leadership in just one small corner of the world, the plague is remembered in history as the plague of Cyprian. He didn't cause it, but he acted Christianly in response to it. The story of the love, the compassion, the heroism of those Christians in Carthage has become legendary. A hundred years later, in the fourth century, the Roman emperor Julian wrote that he regretted the progress of Christianity because it pulled people away from the Roman gods. Here's what he said, atheism, by which he was referring to Christianity. Isn't that interesting? Atheism has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans, that is Christians, care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. Giving ourselves to the goal of seeing to it that there are no needy believers in our church. It's a valid, it's a worthwhile goal. A healthy, loving, unified church is not only a pleasant community, but it's also a powerful witness to the world. The Apostle Paul wrote to the believers in the Roman province of Galatia, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone to everyone, and especially, especially to the household of faith. Those who sold land and houses to meet human need in the church brought the proceeds, Luke says, and laid them at the feet of the apostles. It's language that's unique to Luke's writing. But it emphasizes, first of all, the authority authority of the apostles, and secondly, the trust that was placed in them by the believers. So it, because it suggests a kind of legal transfer uh, of funds to the apostles with complete confidence that they would administer them ethically 
and responsibly. This is kind of the biblical roots of what we call today a benevolence fund. It's important that we contribute to that. We here at LifePoint have been able to help a lot of people in some pretty significant ways with money from that fund. Finally, in verses 36 to 37, we're shown an encouraging example. An encouraging example. Thus, Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Just one example. Just one example, one guy. But Luke very subtly introduces a great man in the life of the church. He did what Luke described. And you've heard of Barnabas. You've maybe read about him. You may not have known that his real name was Joseph, that Barnabas was just a nickname given to him by the band of apostles. He was apparently a great encourager. One day somebody called him son of encouragement. And it stuck. Encouragement is listed by Paul as one of the gifts of the Spirit. And I've always thought it was just kind of awesome, kind of cool that, that he so exuded encouragement that they gave him a nickname in keeping with his giftedness. If you're going to be called son of something, it may as well be something good, right? <laughs> the late John Stott called him Mr. Positive. And his act of generosity that's described here in verses 36 to 37 is totally in keeping with his character as we see it emerge later in the the narrative of Acts. I don't want to belabor this describing Barnabas here, but other than to note that it's been said that Barnabas may be one of the top three or four most important people in the entire New Testament. Barnabas played a a decisive role in many aspects of the life and mission of that early church. The book of Acts presents Barnabas as a leader, uh, as a model of integrity and character, a man of generosity, calls him a good man in Acts 11, in Acts 13, a prophet and a teacher. In Acts 14, he's actually referred to as an apostle. In Acts 15, we see him as one through whom God worked miracles in Acts 13 and 14 as one who faced persecution in Acts 15 as one who risked his life toward the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, that might describe a lot of people in the New Testament. But think about this. Without Barnabas, there's no Paul. Remember that Paul was a, in his prior life, was a Jewish terrorist who was persecuting the church. He was killing Christians. And so when he was converted, the church really didn't want to have anything to do with him. They didn't trust him. But it was Barnabas who advocated for him on two occasions with the apostles so that they finally accepted him. Without Barnabas, there's no John Mark. Mark is the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark. He was a young man. Barnabas saw his potential when no one else seemed to. Without Barnabas, the church would have been the poorer, whether spiritually or relationally or or economically. And we're going to learn lots more about Barnabas in the weeks and months to come. The reformer John Calvin lived and ministered 500 years ago, 500 years ago in the 16th century. 
But listen to his commentary on this passage that we've been examining this morning. It, it reads like it could have been written on Friday of this week. We must have hearts that are harder than iron if we're not moved by the reading of this narrative. In those days, the believers gave abundantly of what was their own. We in our day are content not just uh, jealously to retain what we possess, but callously to rob others. They sold their own possessions in those days. In our day, it's the lust of purchase that reigns supreme. At that time, love made each man's possessions common property for those in need. In our day, such is the inhumanity of many, that they begrudge to the poor a common dwelling upon earth, the common use of water, air, and sky. Powerful words. As we close, I want to turn your attention to the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 8, 7. 2 Corinthians 8, 7, where he calls us to excel in this grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel, that you excel in this act of grace. Of what grace was Paul speaking? It was the grace of giving. It was the grace of generosity. It was the gate. It was the grace of compassion the grace of sacrificially meeting the needs of the poor within the family of God. He called the Corinthians to excel in this grace. And God calls us still today to do the same. Jesus said that the gospel of the kingdom would be good news for the poor. When he read from the prophet Isaiah there in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, he read this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. As those who are the recipients of God's grace in Christ, as we who are the recipients of great material possession, as those who are commissioned to make disciples of all the nations, we are also called to excel in this grace of giving, this grace of generosity. We're going to look more deeply at this over the next couple of weeks, exploring what what all of it might mean for us individually as well as for us as a church. But now let's pray together. Lord, may it be that we live out that axiom that what we think we own is really on loan and that we would be faithful and generous stewards of all of that with which you have blessed us. May we be found to be faithful stewards knowing that you have entrusted much to us May we excel in this grace of giving. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.